and this is the second day of this September 2020 two-day Sashin. And we'll resume from uh, yesterday and check in on the young Soko Morinaga. Um, as you may recall, we ended with uh, him as a young man meeting his teacher, Zuigan Roshi, uh, at the monastery. Uh, and Zuigan Roshi, um, I just want to bring this up, um, just a reminder that as this young man um, rambled on for 30 minutes about or knows what, he was obviously in a tremendous amount of agony and, and confusion. And uh, Zuigan Roshi, this abbot, just stood there and listened, this 70-year-old man. I can't resist uh, telling another story, just briefly, about Philip Kaplow, not so young. He's 42. And this is just a few years later, and this is his own experience that he recounted uh, when he finally met his first teacher. And this is from One Bird, One Stone, 108 American Stories uh, by Sean Murphy. And the section here is called uh, First Lesson. And this is Sean Murphy writing. After traveling around Japan for some time, looking without success for a Zen teacher who might be willing to work with Western students, Philip Kaplow and his traveling companion, Professor Bernard Phillips, received a letter from Abbot Son Nagakawa Roshi of Ryatukuji Monastery, saying they could stay there for a short time. Excited at the prospect of finally meeting a teacher with whom they could communicate in English, the two Americans spent the six-and-a-half-hour train ride formulating a variety of philosophical questions they hoped he would answer for them. On their, on their arrival that evening, Son Nakakawa greeted them, asking them if they were tired from their long trip and might like to rest for a bit. We're a little tired, they admitted, but we've prepared a number of questions on the subject of Zen that we stop, the Roshi commanded. After you do Zazen, you can ask whatever you want. Meanwhile, I have some business to attend to. Ignoring the protests of the Americans who had never been instructed in how to meditate and weren't even sure they could sit cross-legged, the Roshi told them, do it any way you want. Just sit on the floor and remain silent. With that, he left them to their own devices. Until the Roshi had concluded his business, wrote Kaplow, the two sat, no, Roshi, this is, this is now Philip Kaplow talking. No, we wriggled wordlessly for two miserable hours in the dark hall. Concentration impossible, thoughts chasing each other like a pack of monkeys excruciating pain in legs, back, and neck. At last, the Roshi sent for them and proceeded to offer a simple meal of rice, which they devoured. He then asked cordially, Now, 
What would you like to know about Zen? Not a thing, responded the Americans, who were by this time so exhausted they could scarcely remember their questions. Oh, well, then you'd better go to sleep, said the Roshi, because we get up at 3.30 in the morning. Pleasant dreams. That was the worst sitting I've ever sat in my life, said Kaplow, looking back on the experience during a recent conversation at the Rochester Zen Center. One look at me, and he had me pegged. That was my first lesson in Zen. Uh, it reminds me of what Morinaga Roshi said earlier um, about realizing uh, how he had just been living a life of thought and, and books and knowledge and not really living a disciplined life in the body, which, of course, Zen is all about. It, this is a practice that we do. Okay, so now back, back to novice and master. Let's, let's take a look at how he is doing on his first day there. This section is called, There is No Trash. All right, so uh, now Soko, the young Soko, he's been accepted. And the Roshi says, follow me. He assigned me my first task, which was to clean the garden. Together with this seven-year-old Roshi, I went out to the garden and started sweeping with a bamboo broom. Zen temple gardens are carefully designed with trees planted to ensure that leaves will fall throughout the entire year. Not only the maples in autumn, but also the oaks and the camphors in spring regularly shed their foliage. When I first arrived in April, the garden was full of fallen leaves. The human being, or my own mind, I should say, is really quite mean. Here I was, inside my heart, denouncing this old fool and balking at the very idea of trusting him so easily, yet, at the same time, I wanted this old man to notice me, and so I took up that broom and swept with a vengeance. Quite soon, I had amassed a mountain of dead leaves. Eager to show off my diligence, I asked, Roshi, where should I throw this trash? The words were barely out of my mouth when he thundered back at me. There is no trash. Well, no, no trash, but look here. I tried to indicate the pile of leaves. So you don't believe me then? Is that it? Oh, well, it's only that, well, where should I throw out these leaves? That was all that was left for me to say. Yet yeah, don't throw them out, he roared again. What should I do then, I asked. Go out to the shed and bring back an empty charcoal sack, was his instructions. When I returned, I found Roshi bent to the task of combing through the mountain of leaves, sifting so that the lighter leaves came out on top while the heavier sand and stones fell to the bottom. He then proceeded to stuff the leaves into the sack. I had brought them, I had brought them, excuse me, start again. He then proceeded to stuff the leaves into the sack I had brought from the shed, tamping them down with his feet. After he had jammed the last leaves tightly on the sack, he said, 
Take these to the shed. We'll use them to make a fire under the bath. As I went up to the shed, I silently admitted that this sack of leaves over my shoulder was perhaps not trash. I also told myself that what was left of that pile out there in the garden was clearly trash and nothing but trash. And you can almost, you can feel Soko's stubbornness of, of wanting to be right. Um, that is part of what happens when we undergo training, whether it's in Sashin or residential training or our daily practice. It's, it's seeing, noticing if we have this tendency, and I think most of us do, is wanting to be right all the time or at least not wrong. I got back though, only to find Roshi squatting over the remains of the leaf pile, picking out the stones. After he had carefully picked out the last stone, he ordered, take these out and arrange them under the rain gutters. When I sat out the stones, together with the gravel that was already there and filled in the space pummeled out by the raindrops, I found that not only were the holes filled, but that my work looked rather elegant. I had to allow that these stones, too, failed to fall in the category of trash. There was still more. The clod, there were still more, though. The clods of earth and scraps of moss, the last dregs. Just what could anyone possibly do with that stuff, I wondered. I saw Roshi going about his business, gathering up these scraps and placing them piece by piece in the palm of his hand. He scanned the ground for dents and sinks. He filled them in with the clods of earth, which he then tamped down with his feet. Not a single particle remained of the mountain of leaves. Well, he queried, do you understand a little bit better now? From the first, and in people and in things, there is no such thing as trash. This was the first sermon I had ever heard from Zuigan Roshi. Although it did, take, it did make an impression on me, unfortunately, I was not keen enough to attain Satori as a result of simply hearing these words. From the first, in people and in things, there is no such thing as trash. These words point to the fundamental truth of Buddhism, a truth I could not as yet conceive in those days. This, this story really demonstrates our need or the necessity of trusting one's teacher. We might not understand or 
fully understand or see what he or she is telling you at the time because of all of our delusions that we may uphold in the mind about ourselves and about others. But if, if one can just take heart in what they say uh, and just to carry on, to carry about on one's own business and keep doing the work of Zazen and the daily practice off of the mat and trusting one's teacher, uh, it can make a difference. And looking back in hindsight, there are just so many examples I can think of in terms of my own experience with Roshi. Um, well, missed opportunities, things I just didn't realize about myself because of my own delusions and my own, my own filters. It's another way of putting it. But we'll talk a little more, bit more about the student-teacher uh, relationship later. So too, Buddhism does not say only to throw away all desire, to toss aside all seeking. It is especially in the Zen sect that we seek that we knock at the door through a practice so intensive as to be like carving up our very bones. Buddhism points out, however, that after all the seeking, what we attain is the realization that what we have sought was always, from the beginning, already ours. After all the pounding away, we awaken to the fact that the door was already open before we ever began to knock. So you see, Zuigan Roshi pointed out the most basic truth right from the start when he said, From the first, in people and in things, there is no such thing as trash. Unfortunately, I did not understand him. I went on pretending to be a disciple who trusts his Roshi, while inside my heart I criticized and resisted. To tell you the truth, I found almost everything he said irritating. Next chapter, Consumed with Cleaning. Many, many people look down on activity that pertains to the basic necessities, but I myself do not regard such work as menial. If you desire to gaze out over wide vistas, you do well to climb up to a high spot. But if you wish to gaze into the human heart, you must climb down and look from a low place. As soon as I entered a Zen temple, I was made to do just that through a routine of all-out cleaning. I think at the time he was the only one in the temple with Zuigan Roshi. From morning to night, my mind came to be consumed with cleaning. This led to quite a preposterous experience and one that illustrates a thorny aspect of practice. If a person knows that they can come to some understanding of truth through the practice of cleaning, they just may get caught up in the practice and find that they are actually moving further away from seeing truth. Their own heart has become fettered by that practice. Reminds me of just goal-oriented uh, state of mind. 
um, of of cleaning cleaning something that we don't want to clean first of all that we we have tremendous amount of risk resistance but also of cleaning uh with the resultant goal in mind now, of course of course we want to clean a floor in our kitchen or in our bathroom but to be attached to the result to just get roll up your sleeves and just get into the cleaning moment by moment with no results or no goals in the mind. One morning, after I had prepared the meal and given the call to breakfast, Zigan Roshi slowly entered the dining room and said, Hey, go into my room and from my desk look toward the alcove. Generally, to the ears of a novice monk, the Zen master's manner of speaking comes across much like anger. So when I heard Roshi's words, I thought with a start, uh-oh, I bungled the cleaning again and immediately rushed to the room. This is so, this is at least my own experience of, of um, or witnessing. Um, let me start again. It's that filter that I, I speak of, or the many, many filters that we have. And so, um, we may recall um, a teacher, your teacher, one's teacher, um, giving one feedback. Um, well, here I'll give an example. ideas and filters in our head. I don't know if this directly points to what we're talking about here, but I'll give it anyway. Um, in my early days, in my early uh, days, I think it was a year or two, I, I on staff here at, at the Zen Center, I uh, was receptionist for a short time. And then all of a sudden, Roshi calls me uh, at, for, for me to see him in his office. So I get off, uh, I get I get out of the office, walking, kind of rushing towards the other building. And in my mind, I had this idea that he was going to tell me something so crucially important. It probably comes as a self, the sense of self-importance. But I just was so convinced that he was going to tell me something um, important. Uh, so I got into his office and I said, yes, Roshi. And he said, um, Christopher, I've noticed recently that you've been really forgetful. And that was it. My heart sank and I just kind of, I must have looked like a dog with a tail between his legs just as I trotted out of his office, just so disheartened. Now some may hear that feedback as anger I mean, at least I didn't hear that. I just heard him just state out matter-of-factly that I've been screwing up. I've been, been forgetful. I've been forgetting this, forgetting that. Um, and it was a real teaching. It was, it was a reminder for me uh, that I sometimes get confused and I don't do the work that I need to do or I forget something, um, which I still struggle sometimes, but I'm a lot better. Uh, so that's, that's an example. And some may have heard that feedback who, um, just like this young Soko, may have heard that 
in anger when it wasn't. <clears throat> but back to our story. Roshi's room was small, four and a half tatami mats. The distance between his desk and the alcove could not have measured two meters. But though I carefully inspected the area, I could not find even so much as a bit of dust or a drop of water left from the swab. I crawled about the room on all fours, but I could not find a problem anywhere. I planted myself there for a while and tried to think it out, but I hadn't a clue as to why Roshi was irritated with me. I couldn't be helped. I resigned myself to being yelled at again and returned to the dining room. I, I, I don't understand what I did wrong in the cleaning, I nervously admitted to Roshi. Please show me. You fool, he came back to me. Who said you did anything wrong in the cleaning? This morning I put that single rose of Sharon in the bud vase. It goes well with the scroll and it looks so beautiful. So I told you to go look at it. You did see the flower, didn't you? It dawned on me that I had not, in fact, noticed the flower. I went back into Roche's room to look. The wall of the alcove, which had been standing for over 250 years, was darkened. Against the smoky wall, there was a scroll with the single large calligraphy of the ideograph for Du. When a Zen monk writes the word Du, it is not to the natural phenomenon that he refers, but to direct revelation. Nothing concealed anywhere. Truth, or Dharma, revealed in all things. Buddha revealed in all things. If you all just let the scales drop from your eyes, you realize then that everything everywhere is filled with truth. Everything everywhere is filled with Buddha. Everything everywhere is to be appreciated. This is what the scroll of Dew was hanging there to say. Beneath the scroll, a large, pure white blossom seemed to float out from the old plastered wall and bathe the eye with its beauty. Just moments before, I had failed to see that flower. My eyes had been tightly shut to it. Herein lies the difficulty of practice. Yes, this, this, this is practice. This is what we need to do, is to continually returning our attention to the practice. We have these filters. There's me here and then there's the world out there. And we maneuver, we, we dodge, we react, we... We don't see things as they are. And if one sticks with this practice, then slowly but surely, we just start removing these scales from our eyes. Or we unplug our ears just a little more. Or we feel that a little more. There's just less of a wall between us and reality and seeing things as they are. It takes time, it takes time, and it takes patience. If there's anything I would tell anyone with this practice, um, well, there's actually a lot of things I would probably say, or a few things, but one of the essentials, one of the key is not only faith, but patience, to just keep going at it, day after day.
My oversight was to become grist for my teacher's lectures. After I made this blunder, Zuigan Roshi was wont to say during talks, If the heart is caught up, fettered, you cannot see even what you are looking right at. Why, just the other day, that idiot who was sitting right over there, dot, dot, dot. So I want to talk a little more about this teacher-student relationship. I wish I could spend more time, um, but I will read this one paragraph about the teacher-student relationship. And I'm going back to Finding Your Seat, a Zen handbook by Amal Wrightson Sensei. And I bring this up only because perhaps for some, um, Zugan Roshis might seem like a very harsh uh, teacher. But um, as the book reveals uh, throughout, he has nothing but the best of intentions for his student. And that's where skillful means can come in. There's this rich Buddhist teaching um, in Zen about skillful means. What might work for one person may not work for another. From what Sokomarinaga reveals in his writings, um, it's his own foolishness. He really uh, he has that humor of looking back. Uh, because of all of his decades of monastic training and practice, of looking back and having a sense of humor about his own stupidity. And Zuigan Roshi could see this young man um, and used any means necessary to help his student. So, back to Amal Sensei here. The relationship between a Zen teacher and student is an intimate one. It is not easily compared to other relationships with which students are familiar. It cannot really be defined as a friendship, nor as a teacher-student relationship in the academic sense, nor as a therapeutic relationship though it does contain some elements of each of these. Because the relationship is intimate, powerful, and yet culturally unfamiliar, it has the potential to cause a fair amount of confusion and even pain. From the point of view of Western psychology, there is no doubt that projection and transference have their part to play with what transpires between teacher and student. Old patterns from family or relationships may assert themselves and even if we are able to recognize what is going on, we may feel quite helpless to control it. And yet, from the Zen perspective, all this is simply grist for the mill. The teacher-student relationship is not a therapeutic one in the Western psychological sense, and the teacher's job is not to help us analyze the patterns of our individual psyche, but rather to help us see through and beyond them. In the best of all worlds, we will stick with the teacher, and the teacher will stick with us. Through the times of confusion, doubt, and pain, and this very fact will set the stage for times of joy, 
confidence and certainty to emerge. A heart that does not move. Years ago, I was approached in London by a man. Okay, so just jumping ahead here. Now this, he's talking as a teacher, obviously. Um, and he did, I think, go to London once a year for lectures. Years ago, I was approached in London by a man who had been doing Zazen for six or seven years with this question. I am continuing with my Zazen, he says. Because I want to attain the heart does I want to attain the heart that does not move. But I just can't seem to attain it. Even the day when I was on my way to meet you, somebody stepped on my foot in the subway. That person didn't even bother to say excuse me or I'm sorry, but just went on as if nothing had happened. I tried hard to restrain myself to keep my heart still, but I just couldn't help getting peeved. Please show me just how to do Zazen so that I can find a heart that does not move. This, this is one of many, many misconceptions of Zazen in how we function as human beings. It feels to me like this person is trying to suppress his irritation or his anger. When you're going to get irritated, you're going to get anger. It's what you do with that. It's only natural to get angry. Uh, it's a very human thing. Uh, we're human. We're all going to get angry or irritated at times. But through Zen practice, um, one can experience the irritation or anger more cleanly and not hold on to it for hours after or getting peeved at that guy. You just feel the anger and you drop it. The danger of anger for some, or, or maybe many, is to suppress it. And that's what this fellow sounds like he's doing. He's trying to suppress his feelings of inner irritation at this person. Uh, and, um, and maybe he's, seen, he's, he's thinking that it almost sounds like a zombie-like state of, of, of being, uh, where we just don't feel anything. I'm trying to be the perfect person. And this is what Roshi says. You've already got a heart that does not move, despite the fact that quite some time has elapsed since you had your foot stepped on. From then until now, your heart has not moved in a step away from the place where you got angry. If you think that a still heart is one that does not move regardless of what you encounter, and if that is what you really want, there is no need for you to cultivate it anew. 
Then what is a mind that is truly still? asked the man in surprise. The truly still mind with which you were born is the mind that moves freely. Without ignoring anything, it reacts wholeheartedly to everything it encounters, to everything on which it reflects. And yet, for all that, it is the mind that is never seized by anything, but is always ready to react on the spot to whatever it encounters next. The mind that is still is a mind that never forfeit its freedom and is able to constantly keep rolling and rolling and rolling, going with the flow. This is non-doing. Non-doing sounds like a passive thing, but it is not. It's doing things with an empty mind, just getting in there wholeheartedly and doing things with an unfettered mind. What what, um, Soko Morinaga was struggling with so much in his early years with the cleaning. He was not non-doing with the cleaning. He was was not empty with the cleaning. He was just attacking it with a vengeance, perhaps some resentment or uh, overachieving and just... This overachieving state of mind he must have had, just wanting to get it right and not seeing the flower. Not seeing things as they are. The mind that neither ignores anything nor attaches to anything is not something that is obtained through training. It is the natural, quote, power with which you entered this world. Those of us who are called Zen practitioners, we enter into the monastery or temple, into Zen practice, in order to awaken through practice to this power that we inherently possess, to freely demonstrate it and to bring it to life. Discard, discard, discard. Just start removing the filters from our minds by just focusing, putting that effort into breath after breath. Let's get back to his training. I think this is probably a few years later. The chapter is called No End to Practice. Even for those who follow a monastic lifestyle, it is never easy to extricate ourselves from the acquired customs that we have hauled along with us for as long as we can remember. We go along relying on self-chosen value judgments, discriminating on the basis of forms we see with our eyes distinguishing by the sounds we hear from our ears, differentiating according to the smells we pick up with our noses. He's talking about the six senses here. Uh, and these are our filters, you know, no eyes, eye, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind, and the intellect. That's the, the sixth sense. We discern tastes with our tongues, form fancies by what we feel on our skin, hold prejudiced notions in our consciousness. 
We compare and contrast everything we encounter. It was not a simple thing for me to emerge from this habitual kind of functioning of the mind and to purely and directly experience self and other as one. In order to instantly apprehend situations, a phenomenon for which the philosophical term is, quote, pure experience, I had to pass through the fear of death. I must confess that until I first experienced this in the monastery, life was nothing, excuse me, life was nothing but continuous physical and spiritual anguish. Let me relate something very idiotic that occurred on begging rounds one day during the period when asleep or awake, my koan was never out of my head and my only thought was, I want enlightenment. I want enlightenment. I want enlightenment. Unaware of what was ahead of me or behind me, I banged into something. I had run right into a cow's behind. At just the instant that I realized I had hit the cow's rump, aside from my mighty astonishment, the first thing that crossed my mind, oh, this is enlightenment. The most stubborn of spectators is always right within oneself, always accessing and judging one's own condition. Even when one has reached the extreme of utter exhaustion, the guardian that discriminates and cannot forget this thing called, quote, self, gets busy, whispering all sorts of petty information. In my own case, governed by the tiny knowledge and experience that I had accumulated, the guardian voice would whisper this most unwarranted warning. If you go on like this, you might die. You better stop here. That's that lack of faith that he's having. Uh, but just a little bit about this experience with the cow, <laughs> the cows behind. Um, I want enlightenment is perhaps one of the most pernicious thoughts in the mind. It's a thought like anything else. It's a thought. And so long as we strive and think about enlightenment, wanting enlightenment, we're a thousand miles away. We need to drop everything. Someone once said, it's not what you think. So now, now the Soko Marinaga sounds like um, he's having doubts. Uh, sound familiar? Uh, so if you go on like this, you might die. You'd better stop here. Doing Zazen and still more Zazen, I chalked up nothing but distress and fatigue. Both my head and my body began to lose their normal functioning. The thought that I would surely meet my death if I continued on this vein arose many times to interrupt my practice. But to, give, but to give the conclusion before the explanation, I can tell you that matters most definitely did not take the turn that I had feared. The extremes of fatigue and anguish did not give way to death, but evolved quite contrary to expectations into a curve that led right back to where I had started out. One night, I, one night I sat in the middle of the night, a lump of fatigue sitting on a Zazen cushion. Both head and consciousness were in a haze, and I could not have roused the desire for Satori if I had wanted to when, suddenly, the fog cleared 
and a world of lucidity opened itself. Clearly seeing, clearly hearing, it was yet a world in which there was no me. I cannot fully explain that time. To venture an explanation would be to err somewhere. The one thing I am sure of the one thing I am sure of is that in this instant the functioning of the heart with which I was born came into play in its purest form I, in its purest form. I could not keep still in my uncontainable joy. Without waiting for the morning wake up bell, I made an unprecedented call on the Roshi and received permission to leave the temple for about two hours to deliver the news of my experience to Zuigan Roshi. It did not take me an hour to walk through the black darkness to Daushin. When I arrived, Roshi was still in bed. I crawled right up in his pillow and said very simply, I finally saw. Roshi sprang from his bed, examined me for a time as if with a glare and said, It's from now on, from now on, sit strongly. This is all he said to me. From then on, for the next 16 years, until my 40th year, and Zuigan's Roshi's death at age 87, whether in the monastery or back in the temple, I continued koan practice. So yes, yes, he did finally have a breakthrough. But it doesn't end there. Sit strongly. Years ago, I think I heard from a senior student um, something like, and I can't, you know, I might be misquoting, but once one had a breakthrough, they've gone through the first call on, it was something like, now the, the real training begins. I have to say I disagree with that. The real training is now. What we are doing in Sashin is training. It is, it is doing the work that needs to be done. Some... I guess what I'm trying to convey is just don't give up. Don't give up on the practice, no matter how long you've been training, no longer how long you've been practicing. Um, yeah, just don't give up. Sit strongly.
I guess one of the things I find so moving about that account is is the faith that the teacher has in the student and to not to not let go of the training to to make it clear that even though one has has gone had seen uh seen into their own true nature that it's not over it's not it's not the end it's just the beginning This is all he said to me from then on for the next 16 years until my 40th year and Zuigan Roshi's death at age 87, whether in the monastery or back in the temple, I continued koan practice. No, really, I must say that I continue still. It is not just a matter of the Zen koan, but the living koan of human life that continues without limit. Wake into your own original face, enlightenment, does not mean being able to explain yourself or, nor, or knowing the source of yourself. Enlightenment is liberation from the dross of learning and experience that, without one's being aware of it, has accumulated and settled like so much sediment or like cholesterol into one's own arteries. It is the vivid, lively manifestation of the heart with which one is born, the heart that is no form, no mind, non-abiding, attached neither to form nor to thought, but in dynamic motion. Consequently, enlightenment is not an end point, but rather a starting point. <clears throat> I have gone on at great length about life in a Zen monastery a subject that may seem totally unrelated to your own lives. Yet all people, regardless of how their lives are structured, hold themselves dear. Everyone wants to be happy, and enlightenment is the starting point of happiness. We can use the words true self-confidence in place of enlightenment. Confidence in the true self is a necessary requisite to happiness. Power in which you can come to believe in yourself is not gained through training. It is the great power that transcends the self, that gives life to the self. The purpose of Zen practice is to awaken to the original power of which you have lost sight, not to gain some sort of new power. When you have sought and sought and finally exhausted all seeking, you become aware of that which you can have been. Let me start again. When you have sought and sought and finally exhausted all seeking, you become aware of that with which you have been from the beginning before ever beginning to search, abundantly blessed. After you have ceaselessly knocked and knocked, you realize that the door was standing wide open even before you ever started pounding away. That's that gateless gate one might hear sometimes. That is what practice is all about not only in places especially set up for training, but anytime and anywhere, the person who exerts, exerts himself or herself with dignity, without worrying about results and without giving in to disappointment, is a true practitioner, a true person of the way. I believe that just this 
is the form of true human well-being. And we'll stop now and recite the four vows. <clears throat> 